so uh, this part of the workshop <coughs> is going a little deeper into the issue of meaning you know, so this was a workshop conceived around meaning the meaning of life and so what is the meaning of meaning and <coughs> I'm going to approach it by looking at the opposite and the opposite of meaning is alienation is the loss of meaning and there's ways by which we can think about alienation as universal and happening at any time in history human beings have felt alienated for a variety of reasons they've experienced alienation but in a very special way we're in an age of chronic alienation this is a special temporal or historical moment which we may call modernity we may call postmodernity but it's an hour of chronic alienation and that's what i want to touch on because in a way today more than any other time everybody has layers and levels of alienation within them that they either address or don't address but which leaves its residue in their experience and in their behavior so i was born in india i'm indian by birth and grew up in india and have very strong connections roots with india i'm just back from india just two days back day before yesterday evening i'm still recovering from my journey uh, <clears throat> and while i was coming back i watched a movie on the plane which i wanted to share with you because it had to do with alienation but before getting to that i wanted to talk about the kinds of alienation the analysis of alienation in our times that we can locate in movies like the one that i'm talking about what are the kinds of alienation that we experience today uh, we experience alienation of relationships alienation of relationships are also varied there are many degrees and levels to it we experience alienation in terms of our family relationships in generations in very quickly between your parents and yourself there's such a different world of experience that develops that you cannot share many things that you experience there's an alienation between you and your parents your next generation generation or your children uh there's alienation with once loved ones the very meaning of love has become extremely compromised today the richness of what one can experience as love the depth of love is experienced in a very superficial way today you know one of the great modern poets t.s eliot starts his poem on the love song of j alfred prufrock with let us go there you and i where the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized on a table so it's this banality of life it's this way by which we have entered into a world of mundane existence that surrounds us and that actually pushes us into experience even the most deep realities of our relationships so there is a certain kind of loss there thirdly there is the alienation of relationships of friends friendship is no longer something that is accepted as a free give and take among people we have sundered our communities we are constantly thinking about time in terms of money and profit because it's being spoken to us in in those terms time is money so this is an entire area of alienation the alienation of relationships another really profound area of alienation is work uh what kind of work do we do are we happy with our work uh is it the only kind of work that i could do do i feel fulfilled is there work satisfaction and what 
is the relationship of my work to the rest of the world? Uh, do I do something for the good of the world or do I do it only for feeding myself and my family? See, So there is often a deep alienation with the field of one's work. Thirdly, there is an alienation of our times because of the highly technologized kind of world or society in which culture in which we live. We are alienated from nature. We hardly experience nature as something which is part of our existence. Or we consume nature as a sort of uh, holiday resort packaged experience. We are sent to these kinds of places as a certain kind of a prize for the luxury of being able to work for productivity. See, So this, this is another deep alienation, the alienation from nature. Then we have the alienation of culture. Alienation of culture is something that is experienced chronically, again, by all people, but differently. I see some people, other people from India over here, people may come from different cultures. And in our world today, we are thrown about as if we're uh, just commodities flung around the whole globe, uh, often torn from uh, cultural roots and forced into other situations where we have to just make do with what, what we are given. Or we form diasporic communities of nostalgia where we look back at something that is no longer valid around us. See, So these are forms of deep alienation. Uh, people who have not experienced the kind of post-colonial reality that colonized nations have experienced also experience cultural alienation. That cultural alienation is of a different kind because in a way colonization affects everybody. Even colonizers colonize themselves. It's called the colonization of the life world. It's mental colonization of one's living uh, experience, experience of life. So there is these forms of, 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 of alienation. Behind them there is the sense of the intuition that the order of the world is breaking up. Uh, there are times when we had extremely coherent orders that conventions co connected people. Everybody was connected by certain conventions that they believed in. And they found the world to be coherent. But today, the world is not coherent. There is no single order to the world. We have entered into an age of relativized experience, experience without conventions. Or we try to hold on to conventions of the past. And this is what we are seeing to a great extent today, where politics is becoming more and more rigid, right-wing, and dogmatic, where people are afraid to open to the other. See? So this is another aspect of deep alienation. Alienation of the order of the world. The cosmos itself. It's cosmic alienation. Finally, there is spiritual alienation. Spiritual alienation has to do with the fact that somewhere wordlessly, without being able to actually give content to what gives meaning to the world and to our lives, there is a sense of meaning. People have experienced this at a certain point where everything falls, falls away, but there is a deep sense of meaning. One can experience this in culture sometimes. Music can give us this sometimes. Uh, Nietzsche was talking about tragedy in those terms. Uh, Aristotle had, had his own idea about catharsis as the function of tragedy. But Nietzsche, in his work called The Birth of Tragedy, is talking about how tragedy gives us a sense of uh, inexplicable meaning, you know, certain 
acceptance of even the tragic but even behind the tragic behind the fact of death and our failures there is a certain kind of spiritual acceptance that one can experience and that is a level of unspoken meaning very very deep meaning but we don't experience that very often these days so this movie that i was talking about uh, i saw in the in the in the in the in the, uh, in the plane it's called uh, bilu it was a bengali film uh, i'm a bengali speaking person and it was called bilu rakhosh which means uh, can be translated as bilu the monster and bilu was a middle class kid who lived in a old part neighborhood of calcutta in which uh, joint family houses existed and we are already seeing him at a point where it's become a nuclear family he lives with his parents and he's growing up he goes to not to school he's in college he's he however his world is extremely coherent he loves his parents his parents love each other they love him and it's a very cohesive bond made between people who have a stable culture they enjoy food uh, which is a big thing in bengal see uh, they have very high class cuisine which they all enjoy there is music and uh, the, the the young boy learns music he goes to learn classical music and music as we were discussing is one of those things that can give very deep meaning to life uh, and he experiences that but at the same time he's growing up um, to become uh, an engineer he goes to um, school he goes to college and he finds himself uh, looking for a job it's at this time that in his music school he meets a girl she also comes to the music school she's not from calcutta she's from outside calcutta and um, he bonds with her but she leaves the school because she can't afford the rent and she's looking for a job well they get married she moves in with him but he realizes that it wasn't just the lack of money but the fact that she wanted a job for the sake of the modern world and being a working person but being a working person has certain kinds of gifts to give it gives freedom for example one feels that one has a certain kind of vantage that one is no longer uh, under the compulsion of other obligations uh at the same time along with that freedom comes a price and that price is that you now have to work according to the tenets of the capitalist society you have to make money for your boss and along with that you are rewarded and you become a manager you get a promotion you get vacations and you get the package lifestyle that the modern world is all about uh so this is what happens to bilu's wife this is what happens to bilu he gets a promotion his boss wants more and more of his time he cannot spend time with his friends uh the kind of quality time that he had used to have with his friends now becomes time for venting one's frustrations and drinking alcohol the time that he used to have with his parents is curtailed to very cursory everyday conversations hardly any depth of connection and with his wife what was a really rewarding relationship ends up becoming constant nagging and 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 uh, attacking each other because they feel each one feels that their time is being asked for asked of that they don't want to give any more of their time because they could use it to become more productive uh 
they have a child, but eventually the marriage comes to a point where they cannot continue together and they have a divorce. The father dies, uh, the mother um, experiencing the dysfunction at a certain point commits suicide because she realizes that she's not really wanted. Um, and the bottom line is that Bilu, who started off as a person who lived a whole life, uh, experiences himself becoming a monster. So Bilu becomes a Rakshasa, a monster uh, to himself and in the eyes of those are around him. And ultimately he is isolated, the word that we were thinking about, isolated in a way in which there is no meaning left in life. And finally, he commits suicide. So this is a extremely dysfunctional and uh, dystopic view of our times. I'm sure not everybody experiences it like this, but in a way it's a model of the deep structure of alienation in our times. So this is what I wanted to say, and with this I then want to look at the Indian past and look at the wisdom sources, the sources of wisdom traditions in India to see whether they have anything to offer us. But before that, I'd like us to spend a few minutes, maybe five minutes, to just internalize ourselves and think about our own lives and about the context of our lives, the world in which we live, not just what we do ourselves, but what the world makes us do, and how we find ourselves in our relationships, in our work, in our work, and how do we relate to the world through this kind of existence that we find ourselves in. So I'm going to just be silent for a bit and in a few minutes, in five minutes, I'm going to ring the bell again. Anybody like to share anything about uh, alienation in our times, the story, or anything else that they may have come up with with regard to this context of alienation that I just spoke to? Let's see. Uh, where I read this probably 20 or 30 years ago, some discussion about how had to do with the, the, the evolution the discussion of how um, it used to be the case that people, like the, let's, let's, the example given was the British and their colonizing, they were very um, effective at that and uh, the idea was that wherever they went uh, they would make that, it could be in Africa or Asia, but it would become Britain because they would bring that with them. And, that's a deal, but the principle is that people used to have an internalized, uh, when they, as they grew up, they would develop a kind of gyroscope uh, of meaning and purpose that would then guide them through the rest of their life. Wherever they went, they had that with them. Uh, but over the passage of time, people lost that and sought to get their meaning, direction, and purpose more immediately from their surroundings. So bringing that forward into the present. That's why uh, in my see people always on their cell phones, always in the social media, always looking to see what's happening because they don't have a center. So they're constantly trying to stay in touch with what's going on so they can be you know, up to date. But that's, since that is a 
ephemeral and constantly changing. You have people without a center who can without a sense of meaning. They have to get their meaning for how many likes they've got here or, or so-called friends on Facebook and like that. So that's one expression. Symptom of alienation. Quite, quite true. This struck me about the likes of that story yeah. and how, you know, often um, we're completely wrong, which is supposed to be connecting us, but it actually, um, who we really are. True. And we get all these messages of what we're supposed to do and how we let it means to support ourselves. And, um, I know it's true is, um, and it's, I think what I find is like our mind to simplify the world and to find what everyone looks to just make things mix through these labels. Mm-hmm. And label that I could think of that doesn't sound pretty. That we seem to be in building a lot of religions out of wisdom from I've been, when I'm sitting with a lot. They all come from a womb. They all are all connected to that energy at some point. And there's this energy that I feel is, I keep searching in all of my readings, where did we start getting disconnected? I am part because we built so many of these institutions we're talking about business and education. Yeah. I think that's part of, I think that's we miss this connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. I read through this related series of the Adventist Fields where you have for philosophies such as graduate school and travel to Asia, but also build my own sanctuary, my life, and it's not in that pattern here, where I was able to really come to that place, hey, and work a corporate job. And I'm just so aware of how the whole system and structures are, are don't reinforce, but actually distract all goblins in any way. And so much the mental space, and that part of me is not being fed by work. And you go home, you work home, and then you worry about all these social status things that happen in society as well, and like this thing and that thing. And, and I just feel like the time I've spent, the things I've spent my time on are devoid of sanctity or spiritual nourishment, divided devoid of real connection to the world, so it's kind of ironic. And, um, and that really just, I've just been observing myself since October to now, and I think I'm in a relatively fortuitous situation of something. Just like, what was this like before? Like, if I was a farmer, you know, the sun sets and it's done. And a farmer would harvest festivals, you know, depending on she may have like a sacred relationship to the land and the rains and pray for the rains, right? You have, you say, right, pray with the There's a whole, even then, there were boundaries and there's a sanctification and there's connection to the people you're farming with. I don't know, like they're hunting out in a different chapter of human life. And that may not be where you're most in your center, but it's at least boundary bent, maybe reinforcing and nourishing. And so I'm just aware of this machine now. Right. We're part of that's <laughs> sucking out life rather than reinforcing it. Concept of parenting, and you almost see that our the world and the times we live in is like a parent that teaches us how we want to behave as the world. And and then I thought about when is parenting actually unhealthy, and when should parenting stop? And usually when you put a child development, it should stop when the person has fully established themselves and can make their own decisions and then change the world accordingly. But I feel the way how we live in our times is that we listen so strongly to our times and then it parent us. Parent us about how we should um, materially engage with the world, how we should behave to each other. And I think that alienates us. And I wonder whether we should not let ourselves be parented so much by our times and actually grow up. So whether our text asks us these questions to grow up, mm-hmm. and it's actually our wisdom. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think <clears throat> our times do parent us very strongly, and it's also very subtly, because as they, as, as, you know, as they say, uh, the fish doesn't really know the meaning of water. Uh, we really don't know the real meaning of our times because we are being determined by it. And to a large extent, we are constantly receiving messages for producing and consuming, both producing and consuming. 
and it's a capital-driven society and therefore uh, it's very difficult to break out of that because that's the order of the world today. It's no longer a spiritual order and it's not really an order which um, supports nature or nurture or holistic uh, ways of being etc. It supports itself. It supports its own logic, so to say. Um, So, where do we go from here? And if you're going to look for solutions, we have to see that to some extent the solutions of the past will not exactly suffice. We cannot really go back to the past. But we may be able to go back to a new kind of past, you may say. That there are solutions that or models that we should look at. We should look at models both of society as well as of psychology in trying to deal with our situation. But we have to re-engage both ourselves, with ourselves, as well as with the world. And what does that mean? That is something that we have to work towards. So, trying to look back, I'd like to think about the ancient traditions. And I'd like to propose one of them to think about. Uh, And then, maybe there's not everything that we can take from there. But we can look at what kinds of solutions were developed there. And so, I'm thinking of another time and another text and this is the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is set in a time when again uh, meaning is lost. See, It's a civil war that's taking place. Uh, the conventions don't work anymore. Uh, people don't know what to do. And we have to take back from it what we need. It's not so much the question of a righteous war that we need to take back from it. On the other hand, if we really look at it, there's a war going on all the time in our world. We're in the middle of a war all the time. Modernity is a war situation, actually. Uh, On the other hand, if we look at it, not so much from the viewpoint of a kind of righteous war, but from the viewpoint of work. Uh, The rhetoric of the Bhagavad Gita is framed around three kinds of disciplines that are called yogas. So there are three yogas in the Bhagavad Gita, the yoga of knowledge, the yoga of works, and the yoga of love. So these are three ways in which the teacher is trying to address the alienation of the protagonist of the play or of the of the text. This is a, 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 a warrior. This is happening in a battlefield and it's a warrior who's lost his sense of meaning and he wants to regain meaning. And so the answer to how to regain meaning is being given to this person uh, through this text but in terms of these three kinds of disciplines, orientations, or approaches. So what are these three disciplines or orientations or approaches? And if we are to reduce it to terms that make sense to us, rather than to that time, that place, and that war. Uh, the first thing that's being addressed there is this notion of what, what is being called the yoga of knowledge. And the first thing that the teacher says to the person who is dejected is that there is something inside you, there is something inside you that is unborn, that has not been born, that has not been tampered with that has not been sullied, that has not sinned or been sinned against. There is something whole inside you. 
And you have to recognize that. That's the first thing to recognize. Can we find that? That is the aim or goal of the yoga of knowledge. Okay? So knowledge in this sense is not mental knowledge. Knowledge is that deep knowing that we were talking about, which is spiritual meaning. Spiritual meaning comes from being able to experience something which is part of the infinite substratum of the earth, earth itself. Because what's in us, that which is unborn, is the unborn dimension of the world. The world has not expressed everything that it could express. The world continues to have infinite potencies within it, and that lives in all, all its creatures. We are all participants in that. Can we connect to that? That becomes the first thing, because when he says there is a war going on, and I'm not up to it, I'm not up to this violence that I see around me. The first thing that Krishna says to Arjuna is there is another dimension, a dimension in which this war is not going on, that is always there, alongside with along with whatever is going on and that there is infinite depth to that dimension you have to connect with that dimension that's the first thing he says to the second thing that is the in a nutshell the yoga of knowledge now how do we do that that's another thing and i'm not going to come to that right now the second thing that he addresses is the question of work and this has to do in his case with fighting. But the language in which this kind of yoga, the yoga of works is couched is through a certain phrase called Kartavyam Karma. Kartavyam Karma, there's three, three terms that I'd like to introduce over here. Kartavyam Karma literally means the work to be done. In other words, Confronting us at every moment is a work to be done. That is our work to be done at that moment. What is that? What is the work to be done? This is the question that Arjuna is asking Krishna and Krishna is answering in terms of an orientation and a discipline. How do you know what is the work to be done? And he says to him, given our state of ignorance, and the confusion in which we live, you know, the beauty of the poem that was read out at the beginning of this, of this, of this workshop uh, comes back again. The number of voices that are surrounding us at all times that are speaking to us, that are driving us, that are sending their messages to us, uh, and that we listen to, that that we become enslaved by uh, cause us to do what we do without knowing what is the work to be done. So the first thing that uh, Krishna says to Arjuna is that you have to detach yourself from these voices. And to do that you have to first learn to work without motive. Can we find joy in work? Joy in working without motive. That the joy is in the work, not in the fruit of the work. So gradually as one retrains oneself, what that means is that one can start from wherever one is. One can continue doing what one does. But the priorities of life change. It isn't that what you're going to do at work is more important than the very fact that you cook food for yourself or for your spouse or that you do little gardening jobs at home or that you have to take care of your family. Everything that you do becomes a work of deep, deep attention that brings its own joy not for the fruit of what one does, but because one does it. As one proceeds along that kind of a, 
a discipline one's investment in the voices that are driving you to do to become what they want you to become diminishes and as that diminishes you experience a greater and greater leeway within the bounds of life and the voice that is yours the new voice that you did not recognize starts making itself heard the other term that is important over here that krishna introduces is swadharma swadharma means that each one of us has got certain directions certain kinds of uh, skills certain uh, deep uh, abilities that should become the way in which we express ourselves but we often can't do that we can't do that because we don't even know what that is only a few are really gifted from childhood to know what they can express best most people are spoken for even before they know what they can do so again through this discipline one listens for the kinds of things that actually give deep satisfaction in terms of what one does and one does these things a little more than the other things and they have their own logic they open up their own opportunities the outside world and the inside world interact in a different way and it is possible that new paths open up for one so this is how swadharma becomes a certain path towards the change of a life in terms of work the third term that krishna introduces is loka sangraha loka sangraha means the keeping together of the world and this is a very deep secret this secret teaching is about the fact that the cosmos has a deep unity that even when all the conventions are breaking up that there's something which is trying to build new unity that there is a power of some kind of a message which comes to us if we are open to that loka sangraha the power of unity in the in the keeping together of the world this is a faith this faith is not like a religious faith and i think in our modern world many people express it when they think about the cosmos itself as a presence the cosmos brought this to me or the cosmos the universe uh, gave me the circumstances of my life so one builds a relationship with the cosmos with the presence of the cosmos and one begins to make that into one's primary relationship so as one does that there is a certain kind of wisdom that one begins to experience all around one in one's environment in one's uh, everyday life in the circumstances of one's life and deep within one in, in the voice that one hears that guides us to do what we do the third teaching of krishna is the is the yoga of love and we have to see that uh, the bhagavad gita is a theistic text so one may say that in a way there is a politics of theology to the bhagavad gita as well and i want to skirt around that i don't want to look at that because that is not what's interesting to us it is not whether it's a theistic or a non-theistic text what is more important is that this idea of loka sangraha the wisdom of the world the deep voice of the unspoken recesses of existence is connected to a deep love that there is a deep transcendental love that is reaching out to us through all things through everything and that our relationship with the world should be a relate relating to that love that relating is carried out in our works even in attention there is love 
in the fact that whatever we do, we do with great care. There is the sense of a relationship and that relationship is being made with one being. That being comes to us through everything that we do, everything that we relate with, everyone that we have relations with. And so that increases this sense of the one being. The one being who holds together the world, the one being who comes to us through all forms of affect in the world, and the one being who gives meaning behind the meaninglessness of existence. So these are the teachings that the Bhagavad Gita gives us. And I think that even in our times, these teachings can be practiced to deepen our existence, to deepen our own sense of self, our sense of relationship with the world, and our sense of relationship with others. That they may open up new paths of existence for us, new paths of work for us, new paths of more enriched uh, life for us. So, I'd like to say that these, these teachings are something that we can reflect on in our times. I would also, also like to say that they doesn't necessarily mean that they answer all our problems today. That it is good to look deeply at these things, to embrace what one can, and to look also at what is not answered by these teachings other things that need to be done and finally to look at how one can do these things given the circumstances and tools that we have today in our in our life today so with that i think we'll pause for another meditation to internalize this and then come back and discuss it a little bit like to share anything or ask any questions about the Bhagavad Gita or about the teachings or related to anything else about the relevance of what I said or not and what are the connections with our times and what are not the connections with our times Yes. why I was also saying that we have to take away from this what means something to us today. Uh, <clears throat> of course, when we go back there, there is a war going on. And the war, uh, I think the real crisis of Arjuna is that he doesn't know whether it's a just war or not, which itself is a kind of a, a really a, a kind of a a, a breakdown of conventions from that time when everything was settled and 
we could say the same thing in our time as well. We could look at it both figuratively as well as re really, actually, not only as an internal battle, but as an external battle. A battle in the sense that we are asked to take sides, we are asked to take stands, uh, we are asked <laughs> sometimes to uh, oppose, you know, and uh, are we justified in that? So these are crisis points. And then this we can take to another level where there are actual battles going on. People are fighting in war fronts and being killed and killing human lives. And particularly in our world today where the voice of pacifism has grown so strong, there are many people who feel that that itself is evil. Just the fact of humans taking human life is something that is unpardonable. So the way I read the Gita is that you know the Gita is again in its own time but if we bring it into our times then we have to pluralize it. We have to make it mean something pluralized. You have to give multiple understandings or meanings to these things in the Gita. And it means something to the pacifist and it may not mean the same to somebody who actually feels that there are evils that they must fight against. You see? And I think both are justified. Uh, there isn't, I don't see the Gita as actually telling people there is a right thing to do. What it's saying is that there's a right thing for you to do. And the right thing for, for you to do is not known by you right now. But there is a path by which you come to it. And that path is a development of your own intuition of what is the right thing to do. This is how I see it. <clears throat> that struck me was when you were talking about uh, yoga of knowledge. Um, and this unborn, sort of untouchable, uncorruptible part of myself that was really refreshing because, I don't know, when I was, when I was younger it was really easy to see corruption and, and just things that I didn't agree with, things right. that were unsettling and uncomfortable and I knew that like a part of growing up yeah. was going to be sort of adopting these certain habits and mm. these characteristics of this world that I was born into. Mm. I was like, okay, it'll be it'll be fine as long as I still maintain, you know, a certain core. And little by little though, you know, you sacrifice, you compromise, mm. and then all of a sudden you get here and you look back and you're like, oh my God, like I'm screwed. Like how do I get back to that? Anyway. This is the Pilu monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, who started off really innocent, but ended up becoming a monster. Yeah, and, and you know, it seems hard to like recognize, even like you're so disconnected, even from yourself, that you forgot what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a bit cliche, but the act of sort of returning. It's like the loss of amnesia. It's this, yeah. it's this weird. It's like we've learned to forget Correct. ourselves, mm -hmm. and so it's it, it's this kind of act of remembering, and it, right. and it's nice to know that that's never actually gone. Yeah, and that no matter what you sacrifice, what you've compromised, how far you think you've gone, how terrible you think you've become, or how great you think you've become, you mm -hmm. know, you're still like this, just self. Yeah, I think the recognition of that unborn part is a really powerful uh, way of opening to a renewed life, you know. And I think uh, the Gita is not really giving us a lesson of how we can change the conditions of our life. But I think this is a starting point for how we can change not only ourselves, but the conditions of our life. Because if we feel if we, that we can come into contact with sources of renewal that haven't been tapped into, we can create a new world. It's possible to create a new world. 
if we have faith in it and if we work together at it. See. So this is this is part of the lesson. This lesson comes to us in many ways, in many traditions, uh, in many Eastern traditions as well, which ultimately, you know, I really took home what you said about patriarchal traditions that have, you know, sort of in a way distorted the message, this kind of a message. We find this in the in Buddhism, for example. In Buddhism, and it's not really spoken about, it, it, it gets truncated. Uh, when the Buddha has his, his uh, enlightenment, uh, the, the power of falsehood or of death comes to him and says, uh, what makes you powerful enough to oppose me? How dare you not respond to me? I am the first and the last in the cosmos. Out of me things are born and into me they return. Uh, and uh, everybody bears witness to that. If you think you have greater power than me, who is your witness? And the Buddha who doesn't say a word or respond to anything that death uh, attacks him with, responds at that point. And the only response is, he touches the earth. He touches the earth and the earth trembles. And what does that mean? It means that the Buddha is saying, oh, the, the, the question Mara asks is, what was before me? Do you believe that you were before me? And if so, who is your witness? And that's what the Buddha does. He touches the earth. And what's being said there is exactly what's being said in the Gita that there are resources, deep resources, that are untouched, that are even greater than the worst conditions of the cosmos, that transcend those conditions, that are part of our heritage, that are part of the world, that haven't yet been born, that haven't yet taken shape, that we can connect with, that we can invoke into our lives. It's important, you know, so this, you know, this untapped resources, how we can tap that? Is it self-development or what is the role of a mentor or guru? So here, uh, Deepak, I think, that, I think that that again is a field that we have to open up as a field of exploration at the individual and collective level. What the Gita is saying is meditation. The Gita is saying that that's what the Gita is calling Sankhya Yoga. The Gita is saying that if we can meditate, and we're talking about these voices, if we can detach from these voices, if we can watch these voices, and get back to a point where we are free from the voices, then we touch that unborn part. You see, this, this entire edifice that seems to be so real is ultimately a construction and behind the construction is the unborn resource. See? So so long as we are caught in it, it's just like Bennett was talking about you know the the forgetting, the, the amnesia, the way in which we have believed in the construct. If we can unravel that, we come back to that from which this has been born. And that has new sources within it. So uh, the Gita's lesson is that, that well, you, you know, that part is the Sankhya Yoga part, where essentially you detach yourself by watching all the thoughts and recognizing the fact that you are not your thoughts. Ultimately, that kind of a lesson does not lead, and again, these are the patriarchal traditions that take teachings like this and turn them into otherworldly and transcendental teachings. The Gita is not saying that. The Gita is saying the detachment connects you to deeper sources of reality itself. See? But that's what we have to uh, aim to do, to unravel the construction into which we've been uh, Sold. Yeah. You, it struck me that you said this 
Yeah, this Swadharma literally means so. This Dharma word is used a lot in the Gita. Dharma means that which holds together. So Swadharma literally means uh, your your law of becoming. Each individual has a unique law of becoming. Each one of us is unique, and we are unique both in our being and in our becoming. So the law of our becoming is the Swadharma. Intuition yeah. to connect with your Swadharma. Right. And, and I'm curious what right in the book, or the book, what you've read, um, maybe talks about that. And this is but when you're saying there's something new or not. Um, it strikes me when you say, um, yeah, that what, what's becoming sounds like gestation. Maybe it is gestation. Yeah. It is a gestation. Yeah. It's about the cosmos. It's like gestating. Right. Um, yeah, I'm curious in terms of what you've read. I think a lot about is there something in, like women say, womb intuition a lot. Is there something in some power that comes from that? So, you know, creation comes from there that you've heard people talk about much in this so you know the Indian teachings there are many different teachings and the more female oriented teachings are tantric you know in tantra and there there is the notion of shakti which is the female power inside each of us uh, both in men and women uh, the feminine power resides and that power is deep in the heart as well as in other centers uh, there is a, certainly a power in the womb uh, of the woman where she can tap into some of these intuitive uh, gestation, uh, intuitions of gestation. Yeah. So uh, each person has to find their own access points, as it were. Uh, the access point may be in the heart. Uh, for some, it may, it, because individuals are different, uh, for some it may be in the mind. That's why the Gita is giving these three paths. They're saying that each of these, you have to find yourself through each of them. But one of them may be more kind of your thing at that point. So that becomes the law of becoming, oh, one of the kind of handles of the law of becoming for you. So from that point of view, each individual has to find their own, but ultimately they're all connected to that deep becoming of the cosmos, the self-becoming of the cosmos, the new becoming of the cosmos. Yes. So, Kirchish, you can help us with the similarity or difference between the circumstance of many people in the room and certainly our culture generally with respect to Swadharma, our individual Dharma, because it seems that in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna affirms that Arjuna is a warrior and that's what he should do. He should change his consciousness about being a warrior but he's a warrior by birth. And it seems that our situation is very different in that a person can start out as an engineer and then become a professor. Of course, I, I completely agree with you, Robert. And I think uh, that's exactly why I said we have to take away from it what pertains to our time and we have to pluralize it. This is exactly why I said, said that. Um, even the reading that Krishna is saying to Arjuna that you were born a warrior and therefore you have to remain a warrior is an interpretation. It's not necessary to interpret it that way. And there are modern interpreters who don't interpret it like that. Yeah. Vivekananda didn't interpret it like that. Vivekananda sees it as a transition that's taking place where it may so happen that what you were born into is what you are meant to do, but it is not necessary that that is what you're meant to do. Character, uh, Arjuna's, uh, everybody's martial, martial arts teacher. Who, Drona, Dronacharya. Yeah, who started out as a Brahmin. Yes, as a Brahmin. And then, then he becomes the teacher of the Kshatriyas. Yeah. 
And that's his Swadharma. You see? So there was a case where somebody was born into one thing, but Correct. discovered by inner work that he needed to sort of shift right. in order to, to find his Swadharma. And the Upanishads are full of teachings like that. There is the teaching of a guy who didn't know who his father was. He was casteless. And he goes to a school of Brahmins. And the teacher asks him, what is your caste? And he says, I don't know what my caste is. I'll go and ask my mother. And the mother says, look, I was a servant girl. I slept with many people. I don't know who your father was. So he goes back and says that to the teacher. And the teacher says, your sincerity and your truthfulness prove that you're a Brahmin. So you belong here. So you, you have to look at these things in a more uh, interpreted way rather than in a literal way. Particularly today, I think. So, uh, connection, not unification, and this is set in the perfectness of a great war, destruction, destructiveness, the situation of family. Yeah. Right, so I'm curious in this, uh, in that context, in this context, what is the role of rather than competing cooperation of competition, which you see so much of in our world and our work environment and that, you know, the end that, that we need to be towards. Right. So what's the role of that competition and then the destruction or, or separation of different constructs? Right. So I think when we're talking about competition in today's world, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. Competition in today's world is arising out of the construct of profit-making and, you know, capitalism, really. It's not really about making another world, you see. Uh, competition and war that is happening in the Gita is happening in a sense because some people stand for a better kind of world, you see. So war may happen because of that. And war is again, as I said, war has to be looked at figuratively as well as actually. So there is a kind of, you know, even in our thoughts, uh, we are taking sides. Uh, particularly in our today, today's political world, uh, we are taking sides all the time. We, we are confronted with various kinds of events that are going on in which we have to position ourselves we have to take sides. And what is the side that we should take? Is it always going to be to try and maintain harmony among everybody? Or is it a bifurcation point in the evolution? There are bifurcation points in the evolution. And one has to know which direction one needs to go at that point. And one doesn't know it to start with, but one develops it from within. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so to to answer your question, actually, I mean, there's a deeper structure to the Bhagavad Gita because it's really a Bhagavata text. That's why it's called Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavata was a, a cult that was arising at that time, and part of their theology is that there is a unified, you know, origin from which there is division that takes place. And the division is the division of soul and nature. So nature is something which is unconscious. And soul is the conscious element in it. And God becomes both of these, becomes soul and nature. And God becomes a third thing, God becomes time. And time creates the circumstances through which soul can unite with nature. And that's the keeping together of the worlds. The union, perfect union of soul and nature. But for that to happen, an evolution takes place. And the evolution is fraught with wrong terms, dangers, and conflicts. Because freedom is given to this process. So when it comes to a point where a bifurcation must take place, the time spirit, which is what is happening in the Gita, Krishna uh, says, I am the time spirit that, have, that has created this situation so that a new world may be born out of this. So it's only a couple of times, so in some sense, 
Vishnu in the Indian teaching incarnates many many times not even 10 times depending on the text you're looking at he may incarnate 25 times uh, and may incarnate partially at certain times etc. Uh, the notion of incarnation is essentially we are all incarnations but there is a greater remembrance or a lesser remembrance this is what Krishna says to Arjuna he says the only difference between you and me is I remember all my births but you've forgotten so in a way I mean to take that particular theology out of it because we're not here with some master of that kind uh, also we are in an age where we don't the, 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 a great number of people have lost their faith in God today so that's the reason I was saying that of faith in the wisdom of the universe of faith in the love that's at work in the universe and renewing the universe is what we can take away from this for our times and that can be enough for us to help us to emerge from our situation so <clears throat> I think we are at the end of our period and uh, should we have a short meditation to wrap up? Maybe a short meditation, a few minutes, uh, just to bring these ideas together, to allow them to mean something to us, and then we can break for lunch. Yes, I'm Yes. Relax.